This series contains frank discussions of sexual abuse, addiction, mental illness, and suicidality. It includes unfiltered and, at times, profane language regarding these topics. Episodes may also contain sarcastic remarks and laughter. Some may deem inappropriate, given the seriousness of the issues covered. Many survivors, myself included, employ humor as a means of self-protection from the feelings brought on by recounting the past. Our goal is not to shock or offend, but rather to provide open, honest, and raw conversation to demonstrate you're not alone and there is a way out. This is Silenced by Stigma. For this bonus episode, I'm interviewed by Eric Jennings. Eric was the first guest on Silenced by Stigma and someone I'm very happy to call my friend. We discussed my history of abuse, the fallout, and what led me to creating this project. How are you? I'm all right. Okay. I'm all right, thanks. Good. Well, um, yeah. welcome to Silenced by Stigma, your own podcast. Yeah. Yeah, it's nice to be. I love what you've done with the place. Uh, all right. So um, we're here today to uh, talk about you and your story. You know, I think anybody who's listened to any of the episodes has caught bits and pieces. Yeah. But, you know, why not put it out there, right? I think it's a great idea. So let's just go ahead and get started. Okay. Um, why don't you just talk a little bit about your early family life? What was your family makeup? What were your relationships like when you were young? Grew up in a blue-collar neighborhood in Rhode Island. My dad worked a lot, you know, like three jobs to keep us afloat. My mom was a, a stay-at-home mom, and I have an older and a younger brother, and we're each approximately three years apart. So. And where are you in the lineup? I, uh, unsurprisingly, am the middle child. Okay, not surprised. Yeah. You know, um, my younger brother and I always really liked each other. I had a hard time with my older brother. I still do, honestly. In what way? Well, you know, he was, uh, he was a bit of a bully. And he would use the fact that you know, let's say he was 12 and I was nine, right? There's a big size difference between the two of you. And when he would get frustrated or I wouldn't do something that he wanted, you know, he'd, he'd kind of jump on me and, and throw me a beating. You know, nothing bad. I mean, it was just kid stuff. But I just didn't really vibe with him, you know, as a person. I think we're a bit different, you know? It, it, the divide only got worse as we got older, as we became ourselves, you know, who we really are. Um, my father was a tremendous man. I wish I could have seen him more in the early years. Things started to level out, and he, he started working only two jobs as I got older, as opposed to the three. And my mother is a different story altogether. That was. It was a very difficult relationship for me. And I mean, I'm guessing for her as well, but I don't have any good memories of that. Do you recall, was the relationship with your mother difficult from the onset? Like as, as long as you can remember or did it? Um, as far as I go back, it's maybe six, you know, in my memories. But there was always that sort of tenuous thing where on the one hand, She'd be a very protective, you know, 
super loving mother, you know, at times almost smothering, but, you know, in a well-intentioned way. But then there was this other side of her that was very unpredictable and was emotionally broken and therefore abusive. She would get violently angry and she would get violent. And that was very difficult to yeah. deal with as a kid. Sure. Yeah. yeah. Um, okay. What about your teen years? Uh, did anything change between the relationship between your parents and your brothers? And, and not so much talking about your abuse yet, just um, still setting the mm -hmm. background. Um, teen years, you know, again, still closer to my younger brother than my older. I had a very difficult uh, time in my later teens. There was a lot of drinking and, and crazy behavior, which very understandably caused tension you know, with my, with my parents, and they were concerned and frustrated. But that seemed to level out in my early 20s. You know, things started to find, you know, a better sort of connection. Okay. So uh, before we get into the sexual abuse, um, you have a story that um, I'm sorry to be laughing, but it's a, a, kind <laughs> of a striking story, um, the nightlight. You want to tell me a little about the nightlight? Man, you really like that one, huh? Um, <laughs> so yeah. when I was young, I mean, I'm, you know, I don't know, five, six, seven, I, I can't remember. There was this little nightlight that was plugged in sort of next to my bed. And I didn't want it on. And it was a very small one. So my fingers, I couldn't pull it out. So naturally, I bit it to remove it from the wall because why not, right? Naturally. You know, and then I get, I get blown off the bed. I saw these blue swirls. It was crazy. It really got me. The corner of my mouth was burnt. The skin was melted. My parents, you know, freaked out as any parents would. So to make sure I wouldn't do it again, or in the hope of helping me understand the gravity of what I'd done, which clearly I knew because it scared the hell out of me. And it, it burned me. My mother took me to some sort of mental health professional. And essentially what they did was sit me down and have me look at a slideshow of children who had been very, very badly burned and disfigured from electrical accidents. And I remember, you know, I'm screaming and I'm yelling and I, I tried to, I think I ran around the chair. You know, because I didn't want to look at it and begging them to stop. And, you know, they forced me back in the chair and they made me look at it. And it was, it was ugly stuff. I mean, it, was, it wasn't like pictures of these kids when they were healed. You know, th these were pictures of the kids with fresh injuries. And it was horrible. I can still picture one of them yeah. in my head, a very small kid with a diaper on and his, his face. Oh, my God. Just you telling me the story, um, uh, I, I'm affected. I mean, I'm, I'm tingling a little bit with, like, that was gruesome. That was brutal. That was, mm. um, I can't Clockwork imagine. Orange. I can't imagine what that would have felt like at that young age. Um, when you first told me the story, it was after we had been talking for a while, and you almost told it as an afterthought. Um, <laughs> but it strikes me as pretty important. Right. That was a traumatic event for you. Well, I could say that I would imagine 
part of the reason that it was an afterthought was intense punishment, shocking, fast, not uncommon with my mother. Yeah. You know, there was, the, you know, pushing me against the refrigerator and uh, making me hold my hands by my side till she slapped me in the face, you know, slapped me in the face until I fell down. Um, wow. Breaking meter sticks on my ass. And then there was the emotional stuff, which is very difficult to understand. Uh, according to my mother, we were very poor when I was a kid. And she would constantly tell me that you damn kids are the reason we're going to end up in the poorhouse. We're going to end up on the street because you don't know how expensive it is to raise you kids. And she would say it so much. And it would make me feel like it was my fault. I remember um, before school, um, first grade, something like that, I wrote a note from my mother and I said, I'm sorry, you know, for causing so many problems and I don't want us to be poor, so I'm going to go away. And then being a kid, you know, what do you, you walk two blocks, right? And, and panic sets in, you know, so you, you start trucking your little butt back home. My mother saw the note and was so angry at me, was insulted that I had said that, was just livid as opposed to thinking, you know, man, maybe I shouldn't expose, you know, a seven-year-old kid to financial worry that we're having, like tragic, not saying like, oh, we can't afford to buy you that toy you want. Like, that's one thing, but we're going to end up homeless. Maybe keep that to yourself, right? And then uh, I must have been nine, and I brought home a C in math, which was a big no-no. My older brother, very good student, National Honor Society. You know, he had that going on. So this was the first bad grade to come into the house. And, you know, I, I just didn't understand long division. So my mother spent time trying to teach me. And I just couldn't get it. I couldn't get it. Eventually, she got so frustrated and she slammed everything down, got up, ran to the kitchen to grab the car keys. And I'm begging and screaming and crying like, what's, you know, what are you doing? Please come back. I'm... And she said, when your father gets home, you tell him I've left the family. Oh, I don't want to, you know, be here anymore. I've left the family. So, of course, whose fault it is? It's mine, right? Yeah. That's, again, we're poor. It's my fault, um, which, by the way, I don't believe for a second that we were actually poor because when I think back, I don't see that as the case. You know, and then it's my fault that she's so frustrated. And, you know, the, the whole sense of your safety, your, your real safety, your world being so tenuous and could be broken at any moment, and it's all your fault. Yeah. That's a little much. Right. And making me beg her to come back or to stay is absolutely insane. And that in and of itself is is kind of a form of torture, you know, on a kid. And and she would do after that, she would do exactly what she always did, whether she threw me a beating when she went over the top with it, or pulled a stunt like that. She would slam the door to her bedroom and then come out later and try to, you know, rub her hands through my hair. 
show affection. I flinch instinctively because the last time she touched me, you know, she tossed me around pretty good. And then her immediate response was telling me how, how bad of a son I am because I won't let my mother touch me. Wow. Right? And there was a lot yeah. of that. So, yeah. so we haven't even gotten to uh, the sexual abuse. And you had a pretty traumatic childhood. You had um, a, a fair amount of, a significant amount of abuse, emotional abuse, physical abuse. Um, right. Yeah, so that's really unfortunate. I'm sorry that happened. Um, yeah. So I don't want to get into it too deep, but let's start um, with sexual abuse. Um, I want to just touch on the basics first. Mm -hmm. First incident, what happened? Who was that and what were the circumstances? She was my babysitter. She was 16. I was 10. And first it started with her hanging out with me outside of babysitting, kind of working on me. You know, oh, you're so great. You're such a good kid. If you were 16, you'd be my boyfriend. And, you know, I was excited that someone liked me that much. And I liked her. Of course, she was my babysitter. I really liked her. And she was showing me all this positive attention. And then it just went to putting me on her lap and watching pornography with me and holding my body close to her, like really pushing me in and her kind of touching me. And uh, there was a lot of that. I just wanted to reiterate, you were 10 years old. 10 years old. Yeah. Um, and then she would have guys over and she would have me watch while they fooled around, you know? And I remember it was a New Year's Eve and whichever guy came over and they were fooling around, they were getting pretty heavy. And looking back on it, it's insane. I remember having an erection poking through my evil Knievel pajamas. I remember holding my Batman toy while looking at this. I mean, that's, that's the best way to explain how insane that was. Yeah. That's, that's um, yeah. Mm -hmm. It's surrealistic. Um, but It's not ideal. Very, yeah. very dark. Um, mm -hmm. Wow. Um, okay, and then you had a, um, we'll talk in more detail about that, but you had another um, incident, another, or not incident, but another uh, relationship a few years later that was also sexually abusive. What was that? Who was that? What were those circumstances? So she was my neighbor, and she was the mom of a kid, he must have been about six, who would kind of hang out looking for someone to play with. I mean, she was a single working mother. And at the time, he had no siblings, so, you know, he'd seen How old me were you? 14. 14, okay. You know, and he'd come by to shoot hoops or something, and I'd give him some attention. Then his mother started coming by, and she was 22. And that's how we ended up sort of first communicating, and she was dating a guy in the neighborhood that I really liked, uh, kind of a mentor to me, you know, so through hanging out with him, I ended up spending time with her. She did the same grooming thing, said a lot of crazy shit, and then it became a sexual relationship and some very serious and, and bad things happened. And that one, that one took a toll. How long did that last? A year. A year. At the time, you didn't really see this as abuse at the time. I mean, when you're, when, let me, I'm going to, I'm going to back up because when you're 10, mm -hmm. you don't have the intellectual capacity to understand. So, right. you know, obviously 
your little brain probably was just confused. But by the age of 14, you're a little more worldly, a little more aware. How did you view the relationship? You didn't see it as abuse, did you, while it was happening? No. I mean, I thought we were in love. I mean, she would tell me that all the time, how it was the only good thing in her life. And yeah, I'm 14. I'm heterosexual. And when I say, you know, young, dumb, and full of enthusiasm, I think (laughs) is how it goes, right? And uh, my God, I get to be with a woman for the first time. And, you know, she's older. And I thought she was crazy hot. And she loved me. Yeah. So she said. So she said. Did it have an immediate effect on you or did it take some, some time before you started to come undone? Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, there was an immediate, uh, two immediate issues. One was she had confessed to me that she was on occasion having sex with her ex-husband who was an IV drug user, right? So AIDS education, luckily, was a very big thing. That's when it really had started. We never used condoms. I'm sure she didn't with her ex-husband or the guy who was her actual boyfriend, that guy that I admired in the neighborhood. So knowing this, I got on the phone and called Rhode Island Hospital and asked for an HIV test. The nurse who answered said I would need parental permission. And, you know, I was begging her. I explained the situation and I started crying. And I distinctly remember. She started crying. She couldn't believe what I was telling her. And she kept trying to elicit more details, as she should. So maybe she could hone in on this and and put an end to it. But I wouldn't give any. And that was that. So I was living with that. So the call was anonymous. Yeah, the call was anonymous. And then the second issue, this woman's friend, I'm just going to name her Charlene. Okay, Charlene Sherman. She now is a different last name, but her friend Eileen was in the neighborhood and, and I knew her. And Eileen knew about the relationship and encouraged it and would give me tips on how to please a woman sexually and would make little coy jokes about her and I in front of her and I, right? It was, it was as if Charlene and I were actually dating, like as if I was an adult. Wow. And I ran into Eileen one day. And I said, Charlene looks incredible to him. Mean, she's so, so beautiful to him. I don't know what, what happened. And Eileen looked at me and said, oh, that's pregnant glow. I didn't know what pregnant glow was. So she explained it. And uh, my brain exploded. Yeah. So yeah, I bet. Right? 15 years old. She's what now? So I immediately went to her and she said, even if the baby is yours, I'm going to raise it as if it's my boyfriend's, and he'll never know. So to date, paternity is unknown, and this may be delusional, right? But the child does bear very similar uh, physical characteristics to my friend. But in all fairness, he and I are both Italian, and we have similar physical characteristics. So that was a tough one. Does that eat at you in any way? It does since I found out that I was abused, which is a very strange thing to say. A year and a half, two years ago in therapy, it was, no, Mike, you were 
100% abused. This was very, very bad. And then I started thinking about it. And I hope I'm not only in that I would hate to shatter her concept of who her father is. That's brutally unfair. And also selfishly, I'd be like, oh my God, I missed all this time with this person, this child, you know, which is probably insane. I mean, I was 15. But at the time, I thought, well, that's it. I'm going to get a job. I'm going to go into the army, whatever it is. And we're going to raise this kid. I mean, that's not only what I thought a person should do, but, you know, we were in love. And I can get into why I didn't realize it was abuse anytime you want to talk about it. Um, well, I actually want to go back. Um, yeah. The incident, incident, the relationship, the neither of those terms are appropriate. What can you call it? Your right? time with Charlene was about a year. Um, how long a period of time did the babysitter abuse you? Right. Laura Jacobs in the neighborhood. I'm just naming names today because I feel what happened was wrong. And I refuse to extend the courtesy of anonymity to people who violated a very simple, basic, and sacred human trust. Yeah, I understand that. Yeah. I, I don't recall. I mean, I was young and I just remember it felt like she was around all the time. You know, again, because she would hang out with me when she wasn't babysitting. Were your parents aware that you were seeing your babysitter when she wasn't babysitting you? Well, I remember she would do it at the house. Like we'd sit outside and, you know, she'd let me listen to her Walkman, right? A Walkman. How, <laughs> how old yeah. am I? Right? <laughs> I'm sure, you know, why would any reasonable person think that something weird was going on? Because we clearly got along, right? Yeah. And I would bet anything that it's because she was female yeah yeah if the genders had been reversed they wouldn't have allowed a male babysitter and certainly not spending social time you know with the kid yeah that says something and it's a weird thing getting your engine revved at that age <laughs> when as you said you don't really know what it is you can't truly wrap your head around it you just know that something started up inside of you and that sort of dictated a lot of unhealthy behavior moving forward. How did your relationship with your abuse period with Charlene, how did that come to an end? How did that play out? Her boyfriend moved in with her uh, while she was pregnant. They had planned to get married, and I, I believe they did. In fact, I'm okay. almost certain. You know, I will say, even after it came to light that she was pregnant, we were still. Having sex. Uh -huh. It's weird saying having sex. She, <laughs> well, that's what it was for you at the time. At the time, we were still engaged in an emotional and physically charged relationship. You know, so much weird stuff with that. Yeah. I remember hanging out in the apartment with them all the time. You know, they'd watch a movie. We'd listen to music and talk. And if it had been truly innocent. It would be a really nice thing to have these two older people kind of be my friend and, and be mentors in a healthy way. But we would hang out and then it would be time for me to go. And she would walk me to the door with her boyfriend in the other room, make out with me, feel me up. I wish it was you. I was sleeping with her. I mean, wow. 
you know, we can get into the grooming part at some point, but yeah. Wow. Um, sorry, I gotta just take a second to wrap my mind around right. all this. I'm um, I'm almost numb to it at this point because when I realized it was abuse, I was, you know, well on the wrong side of forty. So yeah, yeah. I think you know mm. when you grow up with such a lack of <laughs> normal, uh, right? You don't have anything to measured against and to recognize that this is not right. Um, right. Yeah. Born into a volatile environment. Yeah. That goes yeah. into something crazy and then something even crazier. Yeah. I know that you have had a couple of suicide attempts. So I wanted mm. to ask about that. Um, how many attempts? Two. Two. When was the first time? So um, I was 16. 16. So this is pretty soon after mm -hmm. Charlotte. Yeah. Yeah. I was in full blown alcoholism at that point and uh, didn't understand what I was feeling. Did you connect it in any way to what had happened with either Charlene, babysitter, or anything else? Or no. And, and I'll tell you why. When I was 15 and I started suddenly exhibiting very disruptive behavior at home. I mean, I had always been a hooligan. That was more, I got in trouble for kid shit, but this was concerning. So my parents brought us to a family counselor and they rightfully pressured me into telling them what the hell was going on. And when they finally dragged it out of me. What did they drag out of you? Charlene. We're going to continue that, but did you ever tell them about the babysitter? No. No. Okay. No. So they never found out about that, but you told them they got, they got you to admit what had happened with Charlene. Right. Okay. And then as soon as I did, you know what happened? Nothing. A grand total of nothing. Well, I got grounded for, I don't know, bad behavior. Like as if I was 15 and took the family's car out for a joyride, right? And it was kind of looked at it that way. Like, okay, well, Mike, you are going to be 16, so you are going to have a license. You just did that too soon, so you're in trouble. It was like that with this. Well, Mike, you just had sex too soon, so you're in trouble. Not you were raped, molested, sexually abused, none of it. And you said this was in counseling? Yeah. I remember we were in a tiny room. There were three chairs. My mom on my right, my dad on my left counselor in front. It amazes me because the counselor has a legal obligation to report a crime. And that's how much they didn't see it as a crime. That's how little they thought of it. And my parents never, ever stood up for me. And I have to tell you, if I was a girl, my father would have beat that man to death with a wrench. Of course. Right. But it was different. And the other reason I wasn't putting two and two together, say with that first suicide attempt, like what was prompting me, was it was never spoken of again, not once ever, ever in the house. I was in trouble and I did my time and that was it. Let me get a little bit of clarity here. So was the counseling session with your parents where they got the information out of you, was that before or after the suicide attempt? Oh no, that was before. And I was saying, that's why I didn't think it was abuse. And that's why I didn't put two and two together okay. when I couldn't understand what I was feeling, you know, when I couldn't understand it. 
how how did that happen? How did you come to want to do it? And how did that play out? You know, I don't recall the wind up, but I know it was just feelings I couldn't handle. And they were just getting more and more intense. And and the drinking yeah. did not help. You know, that sped it along. So I had this rifle. When I was a kid, I was really into World War II. I was so fascinated by the stuff. And my father let me buy a captured Japanese rifle from World War II. You know, I just loved the way the stuff looked, but he took the firing pin and hit it. I wanted to just appreciate the thing. And uh, I knew where he hit it. I remember when I got it years earlier, a box of, uh, of rounds had come with it. So I knew where those were too. Put the firing pin in, loaded it, pulled the hammer back, you know, the whole thing. And I put it in my mouth. I don't know. I just couldn't do it. I couldn't do it. And I remember calling my girlfriend at the time, just crying and, and not understanding. And I scared that girl to death, to death. Sure, of course. I didn't tell her what I'd done. But she could easily tell. I get what you're saying, yeah. This boy is coming undone in a very dangerous way, you know. Wow. Well, first, uh, let me just say, I'm very glad you didn't pull that trigger. Um, <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, be grateful for that. And then you had another suicide attempt uh, later in your life. How old were you the second time? 46. 46. Maybe. 30 years later, roughly describe your your life at the time what was it like um and how you came to that i built a very successful bar with some friends and my alcoholism just sped up and my drug use so it reached a point where i was unceremoniously removed from anything to do with the bar let me ask uh what kind of drugs were you doing uh, just benzos you know, and sleeping pills like Ambien and okay. a lot of Xanax and, and the like. Uh-huh. What I didn't know was it slows down your central nervous system so much when you mix the two, it's not unheard of to die from that. Anyway, so things went, fell apart, lost my house, lost everything. I was humiliated. And then uh, I was living in a friend's converted base, um, converted garage rather which is very unpleasant, blacked out the window, drinking went absolutely wild. And uh, then on the 24th of September of 2017, I had had a weekend of, of the most drinking I'd ever done. I went through one handle of Johnny Black in a day. I was passing out, waking up, Taking Xanax, passing out, waking up, drinking, drinking, drinking. I had finished that handle and was literally crawling on the floor to grab the second one because I couldn't walk anymore. And then I just decided, let's go. Let's, let's check out. So I ground up 40 milligrams of Xanax. You know, sometimes with bowl pills, people don't die. They throw them up. That takes some planning. That I mean, you oh, yeah. knew enough yeah. to know that. And then 
obviously I didn't want to. The story gets to me, it gets a little funny because uh, I wanted to say goodbye to everybody, but I couldn't. I didn't want to take a video because I was scared of people seeing me like that, which is a weird thing to say, right? If I was going to leave them with the thought that I killed myself and I couldn't type, I couldn't, I mean, I couldn't do anything. So I'm like, who records phone calls that could get this to them? And I thought, the suicide hotline. (laughs) So right in in my head, right. I'm thinking that's it. I'm checking out. Right. But very clearly I didn't want to. The lady on the hotline said, well, who should we give this recording to? I was like, Oh, give it to, I don't know. It was my sister-in-law, my aunt. I couldn't remember. And she's like, well, I will need their phone number. (laughs) You know, she kept me on the line. And then I just heard this banging, pounding on the door. It was a couple of cops. They busted in. I fell off the chair. <laughs> yeah. They dragged me into an ambulance and then to a mental institution to which I was committed for a little bit. You know, it's, it's, <laughs> you're laughing. I'm, this is not no. a subject. This no, which is why time. I have the disclaimer at the front of the episodes. Like, if you don't deal with some of this stuff, with laughing, you're going to absolutely yeah. lose your fucking mind. Just like in AA, a lot of jokes go around in AA about very dark stuff. And no one who's in an AA doesn't get it. We all get it. That's why you're joking. Yeah. They understand. Yeah. But it is weird. I yeah. agree. I wanted to point it out because for me right now, I'm releasing some of the tension right. that I'm holding while you tell your stories. And so, yeah, the, the laughter is a coping mechanism. You take the air out of the balloon. So how long were you um, in the hospital? A week. And then shipped off to rehab. So that was a month. Did it take? Yeah. Sober as a judge. We're coming up on five years. Well, congratulations. Thank you. Yeah. And my life got exponentially worse when I got out of rehab. Really? You have to pick up all the broken glass, right? Everything you destroyed. Yeah, sure. And I was staying with my mother. Some really crazy stuff came out of her mouth that was very upsetting. Um, Her husband, not my father, she remarried and her husband was dying very soon. He had lost, I think, a lot of cognitive ability, control over his body. It was a matter of time. I believe he was just brought home to die. It was Thanksgiving or Christmas. And my mother asked if I was going to Christmas and I didn't want to. So when I said no, she said, will you stay home? And I said, yeah, but I'm a little concerned. What if he passes or something bad? Like, how would you like that handled? If he dies, you can just close the bedroom door. And I swear to God, this is an exact quote. And go about your day. Wow. So it doesn't sound like mom uh, ever got onto the path of self-awareness. Oh, dude. No. She, when I was like 27, she called me and tried to start telling me in detail all the meaningless sex she'd been having since my father died. I mean, it was graphic. Ooh. And I said, you can't talk to me about this stuff. And her response was, I never really pictured you as my son, I saw you more as my girlfriend, like her friend, you know? That's even creepier. Yeah. Oh, Oh, it's completely fucking insane. But she copped to it, right? She didn't. Yeah. It wasn't the motherly role. Anyway, yes, things got a lot worse. 
after we had, it was very, very difficult. Yeah. So the fact that I stayed sober through that is a miracle. I thank AA for that. I don't go to her anymore, but in that first year, absolute godsend. And I was taking fistful of prescribed medication and that helped. And then once I got through that, staying sober when things weren't as bad was much easier. I want to back up again. When were you in therapy? How did, how did that play out? Was it just a, as a result of the rehab and recovery? I had seen a therapist before my last suicide attempt, and I really liked her. I took a couple of years off because I couldn't deal with, with doing that, you know, while I was in those bad situations, you know, after uh, rehab and, and where I was mentally, yeah. I was having profound concurrent panic attacks. I couldn't think. I couldn't see straight. I was not seeing things that were there. Uh, I was confused. Things just got very bad. And then suicidality peaked. It was dangerous. So I started seeing that therapist. I had no choice. I mean, I was coming undone. It was so bad that I had to talk her out of committing me twice. And through that therapy, as when I realized all this stuff, everything started making sense. All of it. Yeah. You know, I was sober enough. I could see things clearer. And that was very helpful. The other good thing to come out of it is uh, my diagnosis. And I, I'd love to read it out just because it's absolutely fascinating to me. I'd love to hear it. <laughs> this is one of those things where I'm taking a perverse joy. But it's great because it kind of helps explain like, oh, so the event that happened, the way it was handled, this diagnosis explains everything. And what's interesting about this, sure, maybe the depression is genetic, right? That's entirely possible. Um, Maybe some of the other stuff, but every other thing is something that happens to guys like me. So you develop it. Okay. I wasn't born with it. I wasn't born an alcoholic. I disagree Mm -hmm. with AA fervently. I became an alcoholic. I worked very hard at becoming an alcoholic. I also had a hell of a head start because of everything that happened. Yeah. But I'm waiting. I'm waiting. All right. Here we go. Sorry. Let's hear it. Persistent drug resistant depressive disorder, panic and anxiety disorder, complex post traumatic stress disorder, borderline personality disorder, bipolar two with hypomania. And attention deficit disorder, which is very interesting. But the last four, if not five, are directly related to what happened to me. Yeah. 100%. Yep. Yeah. That's what people who do this for a living told me. When your therapist helped you realize what had been done to you, you were able to see it in a completely different light. What effect did that have on your day to day living, state of mind? Almost none for a while. And then I started having dreams about Charlene. She'd pop in, want to have sex with me, and like I would, but I feel really gross. In other dreams, it was I was with her and we needed to hide it from my parents. And then she was pregnant. And like all that stuff started just come blasting through. And I became dangerously angry. So I looked up sexual abuse law in Rhode Island and statute of limitations, drove down to the Cranston Police Department, and I filed 
charges, filed a complaint, rather. Wow. A week later, SVU detectives call me in for an interview. In fact, the detective was the guy from my second episode, and I'm very proud to say is now a friend of mine. I gave him all the information. I have like eight pages of info, names, corroboration, all this stuff. He said, Mike, we're going to wrap this up in a month. We could probably file charges in a month. Three days later, he calls me and says, I, I can't do anything. The AG won't pursue because the sex was consensual, which is absolutely fucking insane because I was, by definition, unable to consent because I was two years under the age right. at which you can. And he said it was third degree instead of first, meaning there wasn't a gun to my head, right? I wasn't violently forced. I wasn't in fear for my life. I then became angrier. Of course, yeah. So I called attorneys to see about a civil case. And I made it clear to all of them, I don't want any money. Keep all the money. I don't care. I want to make her stand up in court. They all said, and we're talking like 10 people. They all said, we're very sorry for you. And you very clearly have a good case. But the amount of money that we would make couldn't justify our time and our resources. You know, on the one hand, sucks, but yes, logically get it. Yeah. But the message I got from this experience was, I got raped a year too late if I had been 13 instead of 14, and I should have been raped by a wealthy woman. So I was a year too old, and she's too poor for me to do anything. You know, I'm a bit of a pit bull. So I started diving into this and reading and reading and reading and, and looking at studies, checking out the numbers. And I realized this epidemic of male victims of childhood sexual abuse is so profound and so underreported. And I'm talking very smart people all over the world have come to the same conclusion. They can't be wrong. I started gathering that info and I created this thing, Silence by Stigma, and I started just posting factual information and always a link to the study, right? So I'm not some jerk off talking about how you can drink bleach to cure COVID <laughs> on Facebook, right? Because my friend's a doctor. Your friend is absolutely not a doctor. So I put all that up there. I started getting good responses and then got interviewed a bunch for podcasts. And what bothered me was almost every single one said, you're the first guy I've had on to talk about childhood sexual abuse. I'm glad you brought that up because I was going to ask you what prompted the podcast. Um, Anger, 100%. To the point you were just making, the very, very important point, the most important point, and it's really what your podcast is about. Men are largely encouraged by our culture and society to stay silent. Yes. I mean, things are much better today than they were even five, 10 years ago. Numbers, how many? How many men do you think, do you know, are like you and me? All right. According to the smart people, we've all understood that it's one in four women who experience sexual abuse at some point in their life. Some people know that the common accepted number for men is one in six. That's not true. It's one in six until they turn 18. After 18, it goes to one in four. 
So 25% of the population of this planet, gender aside, has or will be sexually abused throughout the course of their lifetime. Men underreport so much that researchers, so many have mentioned how frustrating it is because they want to gather data. Gathering data on female sexual offenders is even harder. Men are not incentivized to speak about being sexually abused by a woman because it's a punchline. And you can see it in so many things. And I'm not crying like, oh, what was me? I mean, clearly I can make fun of bad stuff that happened to me. But it sends a message. My parents caught me coming home drunk one night when I was 17, 16, I think. And so mad, as you know, any parent would be. And they immediately sent me to alcohol counseling. Why the fuck didn't being sexually abused warrant that same immediate response? Yeah. Why the difference? Right? Why? Yeah. Why didn't it? I think about these things. I had a mental breakdown around that suicide attempt. I remember I, I came downstairs. My mother was watching TV and I was crying uncontrollably. I was inconsolable. I was shaking everything. It was scary. My mother couldn't be bothered to get off the couch to comfort me. She didn't put together what was happening with me with what was done to me. To her credit, though, she did mute the TV for a bit. So, Jesus. these things, I think about what they took and the time that they took from it. And yes, I'm responsible for every drink I had. Absolutely. And yes, I'm responsible for every time I treated a person with anything less than dignity and respect. I believe that. I really do. Where's your mother today? Is your mother still with us? Do you have a relationship with her? None. I haven't spoken to her in two years, and it's because of all this stuff that I started remembering and the stuff that happened in adulthood. There were other things I haven't told you about that were absolutely terrifyingly, I, I don't even know the word. So no, I don't have a relationship because it's not just mistakes in the past. And I'm okay with that. There are members of my family, uh, aunts, uncles, you know, her siblings that may not understand. Yeah. I can't speak for them, but I, I'm guessing. It's just that I know things they don't. I have to come to, to terms with that, to peace with it. We may have been beaten down, but we didn't stay down. I mean, sort of, but no. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, I think that was a pretty illuminating conversation. Man, I loved it. Um, I loved it. I love seeing yeah, your face. Yeah, you just yeah. make me happy. You uh, do. I, you know. I enjoy talking to you. Yeah, um, pal. Thank you so much thank for you. everything. Um, and, uh, I'll talk to you soon. Yeah, yeah. We both know that. So, yeah. All so right. goodbye. Stop wasting right. my time. Okay. Right. Take care, man. It was, it was great. Yeah. Links to our guest website, email, and social media are in the description. We'll be back next week. And in the meantime, remember... Everybody sucks but you.